Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm the host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today uh, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. Liz, it's so good to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me give you give our uh, viewers and listeners a, a, a brief introduction to you. You are an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister, uh, Presbyterian Church USA, and you also teach at Union Theological Seminary, which is uh, your uh, the school that you graduated from also, right? Uh, That's right. I got my MDiv and my PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York. Terrific. And uh, Liz is the director of the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union, and also the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral renewal with the Reverend Dr. William Barber. And so well qualified to come to this conversation as Liz, we have been all this month uh, talking about the matter of poverty and doing so from a faith perspective. So the, the program is called Good God and uh, both sides of that are important to us in these conversations. That is uh, the good, the common good and the spiritual aspect of it as well. And how do we bring those two things together? So this has really been a work that you've been up to all along, right? I mean, in, in terms of your own career, uh, I mean, even going to school at the University of Pennsylvania, you, you studied uh, urban studies, and this has been a passion for yours. How, does, how do you connect your spiritual journey and this work that you ended up doing? So I was raised in a family that was uh, deeply dedicated to um, faith, and works. Uh, okay. So I was going to protests at age three. I was a deacon in my church, uh, ordained by the age of 16. I was teaching Sunday school and beyond racism day camp at 13, right? So this is uh, kind of a long life of, of seeing that our, our call in the world is to do justice and, and love kindness, um, but that that is a, a faith call. Um, so I joined a movement of poor and homeless people uh, when I went off to college at the University of Pennsylvania um, and found uh, the Union of the Homeless and the Welfare Rights Union uh, that I was a part of at the time uh, to basically be my church and my community. Um, and I, I joined a movement um, to abolish poverty and racism, you know, at a very young age, and I, I've, I've never left. And I, I've come to see that my call to organize um, around poverty uh, is actually a religious one. Um, and that, uh, so, so that looks like, you know, uh, everything from, you know, launching a, a Freedom Church of the Poor modeled after what Dr. King calls for um, in, in the last years of his life. Um, that, that, that connects to a long history of, of justice and freedom work and liberation work in the church. Um, but it also connects to, you know, being out in the community, um, you know, meeting people's needs and advocating for, for um, just policies, um, much like uh, our biblical texts uh, uh, remind us to do. Well, you speak about the biblical text, but I'm going to give you a softball here. And that is one of the key biblical texts that people use to maybe excuse their lack of uh, commitment to eradicating poverty is Jesus 
words, which echo words from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and that is that the poor you have with you always. Uh, I'm going to show your book, as a matter of fact, uh, which is called, uh, titled, Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. And this is based on your dissertation also. Uh, so if, if someone were to come up to you and have enough boldness to say to you, okay, professor, uh, how do you handle this one? Jesus said, we we're always going to have the poor with us. What do you say? So there has not been a week in my life for the past 25 years where somebody doesn't have that boldness. Um, and sometimes that's organizers and anti-poverty activists. Sometimes that's, you know, self-proclaimed atheists and scientists. Sometimes that's, you know, the, the head of my ordination committee when I was trying to be ordained, um, who, who use that text, that line, they, they pull it out of context and they say that if God wanted to end poverty, he would do so. Um, that the only uh, time that we'll have uh, uh, a world without poverty will be when we die um, and there's pie in the sky. Um, and, and even those who are compelled to do something in the face of poverty um, use this text to say that charity or, um, or social services um, are the only, uh, you know, credible response um, and that, uh, you know, and those are about band-aids, not about systemic change, right? Um, but but and so I, I got actually so interested. The reason I basically did a PhD, wrote a dissertation, and wrote a book on this topic is that I see it as a, a very significant biblical roadblock um, obstacle to actually, you know, uh, to ending poverty, which I think is actually the instruction, the commandment we get from God. Um, and so I see it as an obstacle to doing the work of following, you know, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, I also see it as a, a roadblock to a, a, a more healthy and fruitful society for everyone. Um, you know, one of the things that we lift up in the Poor People's Campaign is that when you lift from, from the bottom, everybody rises. And so that actually poverty and inequality are costing our nation, costing our world more than it costs to resolve them. And so, so this biblical obstacle to ending poverty is, is, is a costly one, both in the human lives and sacrifice of, of, of millions of poor people, but also in terms of resources of a society to, to do something about it. And so if you look at this passage, um, when, when Jesus says the poor will be with you always, it's in the a greater context of, for one, for Christians, Holy Week, right? Um, he and his disciples have come to Jerusalem. They, they, they have this um, significant kind of procession that is, is critiquing the Roman imperial procession. Um, they, he, he goes to, to the temple, which is the center of, of not just religious, but also political and economic um, uh, you know, power um, in in his day and in the day um, where he turns over the tables. You know, what we say is that that was the first moral Monday, right? It was a Monday and, and he uh, he enters into the temple and he he stops all the buying and selling and, and the oppressing of the poor. Um, and then he has to run and hide um, and he hides in Bethany. And Bethany um, is in Hebrew, house of the poor. Um, 
And he goes and, and is in the house of Simon the leper, clearly someone that has been marginalized, um, uh, uh, you know, by a healthcare system that has uh, chosen to ostracize, you know, sick people instead of healing a society that makes them sick. And so he's there amongst his disciples and a woman comes in and anoints him, um, pours muron, um, which is a holy anointing oil on his head. Um, when she anoints him, that's actually the only thing that has to happen for him to be made Christ, to be, be set apart as the Messiah. Um, so this is a very important text. Um, and, uh, and the disciples, they don't get it. Um, or they're bothered by what she's done. Um, uh, they don't want to think that, that Jesus is, is about to be um, handed over and crucified as a revolutionary, as someone who's a rabble rouser, um, you know, uh, threatening the Roman Empire. And, and so they say, why did you destroy this? Um, why did you break this jar and, um, and right. waste this, um, this resources? The money could have been sold. Um, I mean, the, the jar could have been sold and, and the money could have, been, the proceeds could have gone to the poor, right? Um, and so then it says in our text that Jesus was aware of this. And he responds back to the disciples who are questioning him. Why are you harassing this woman? She's done a mitzvah. She's done a good, good work. Um, uh, and and then, then he quotes Deuteronomy 15. He says, the poor you will have with you always, but you will not always have me. Um, so again, we might not be aware that he's quoting Deuteronomy 15 when he says the poor will be with you always. Um, but but his, the, his disciples would have very much been, right? right. These are the, the Hebrew scriptures. This is what people um, are very aware of. They're studying. And, and this is also what Jesus in particular has been has making sure his, his followers are, are aware of, is these, these jubilee, these justice, these Sabbath prescriptions, these anti-poverty programs that are all across our Hebrew scriptures. Um, but so Deuteronomy 15, you know, a couple, couple lines earlier than, than the line that he quotes, um, it says, there will be no needy among you uh, if you follow the commandments that God is giving to you today. And what are those commandments? You know, so Walter Brueggemann, um, you know, a famous Old Testament scholar says that actually Deuteronomy 15 is, is the most radical economic practice in the Bible that's basically overlooked. Um, and it's about, it's about, uh, the, it's about Shemitah. It's about release. It's about Jubilee. It's about um, Sabbath prescriptions. It's about um, forgiving debts, uh, releasing slaves, paying workers a, a, a living wage and lending out money, even though you might never get paid back again. And, and, and instruction to nations, not just to individuals. And it says that when your nation basically organizes itself around the needs of the poor and those of the, at the bottom, that, that then your nation will never have to borrow. It will be a flourishing place for everybody, right? And, and then uh, the Deuteronomy 15 text continues and it says, but, you know, and this is me paraphrasing, but more or less, you aren't going to listen to this because you're a greedy people. Um, and, <laughs> And, and so when you don't listen to this, the, the poor will never cease to be in the land. And then it goes back and says, so open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor, right? And so, right. so when, you pull out this one, when you pull out this one line, you know, again, it sounds like a fatalism. It sounds like an inevitability of poverty. But, but when you don't have it in the bigger context, which is saying, God has shown us what we're supposed to do. 
And any poverty that exists in our society means that we're being disobedient to the commandments of God. Um, and we know what we can, what we should do it. And so then this is Jesus reminding his followers, like he does over and over again, I've told you already um, what, what we need to do. And what we need to do is, is release debts, pay workers a living wage, um, you know, you know, release slaves, you know, structures the society around everybody, not just a, a wealthy few. And, and you know what, that won't just make the wealthy few happy. It'll make the whole society better. Um, and, and then you have Jesus basically passing that charge off to his disciples because he is very aware that he's a threat and that he's going to be killed. And so that others have to continue the fight. Okay, Liz. So uh, all of that is a terrific look at the biblical text and the context of Jesus' own ministry and that particular statement, both in Israel and in Jesus' time. Uh, what I hear you saying about all of that is that whether you're drawing upon uh, the Hebrew scriptures or you're drawing upon the early Christian church, there is a kind of alternative economic system that the people of God are supposed to practice in some sense as a, a curative to the world of empire and the economic systems that exist otherwise outside of these religious communities, right? So here we are in the year 2020, and we live in the United States of America, and there is a dominant economic system called capitalism, right? And in this system, we have a tremendous increase of wealth generally that is inequitably distributed, right, in terms of the, the broader population. So we have enormous poverty on the one hand, and we have enormous wealth on the other hand. But when people of faith uh, hear what you're saying, it seems like in the, in the conversations that happen publicly, there really is a limited imagination about uh, how to address politically these economic challenges. And that is, we either, we either retain the current system that we have and increase our charitable impulses, right, to address poverty, because that's the nature of things. And we you know, this is this is how capitalism flourishes, and it increases the sense of uh, individuals and faith communities' sense of responsibility for the poor to to be charitable. Or we recreate our entire economic system along more Marxist lines, and we become a more socialist and some would say communist sort of system, which the argument goes. Uh, hasn't worked and is devoid of spiritual intent and is materialistically based and all those sorts of things, right? So, Mike, I think what people would love to hear from you is, you know, how how do we get past this sort of incredible binary we find ourselves in in terms of political rhetoric, right? Where we we have uh, we have you're either you're either for the dominant system of capitalism that continues to keep people poor, or you're for an alternative system that will impoverish more people uh, or, or limit people's 
wealth creation and uh, in the name of uh, a, a more just society for people at the bottom. So how, how do you answer people who see things in that binary way? So those are, are not terms that we in the Cairo Center or or the Poor People's Campaign uh, use. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I hear I hear the conversation, I hear the debate. Um, what I know is uh, I follow the words of of Reverend Dr. King, who launched a Poor People's Campaign in the last years of his life, and and he said the poor and dispossessed live in a cruelly unjust society. Um, uh, they must organize against that injustice, not against those who have, uh, who not against the the people, but against a system which has the means, which are at hand and have been called for to lift the load of poverty. He says, um, if poor people can take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. And so, when I pair. Uh, and I read that text every morning, right? When I pair Dr. King's, you know, uh, he continues and he says, you know, so that's why then in, you know, we're calling for thousands of poor people to come to DC to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience and why we're calling for an intergenerational nonviolent army of the poor, a freedom church of the poor, right? He, he continues to, to put out some, some kind of programmatic ideas there. Um, but when I read that text and I read you know, whether it's the manna and exodus or the Deuteronomic code or, you know, woe to you who legislate evil, who deprive the poor of their rights, making women and homeless children their prey, you know, in Isaiah. Um, or, or when I read, you know, the Beatitudes and blessed are those who are poor, um, you know, and again, the Greek here says poor um, in breath or poor who are calling out, we can't breathe. Um, for there uh, is... There's a phrase empire of God, right? Because again, um, Basilea, um, you know, we've made it into kind of uh, European royalty when it's really, you know, talk, taking on the, the Roman empire, um, the, the system of, um, of, you know, domination, economic power, exploitation, you know, of, yeah. of Jesus's day, right? Um, right? And so, you know, and it continues that you can't serve, you know, uh, God and mammon. And, you know, it just, it, and, if, and if we just kind of keep it going, and then we get to Revelation, right? And you get the the cargo list of, of you know, the merchants of the earth are weeping because nobody is buying their stuff anymore. And what is their stuff? You know, it's, it's fine linens and it's, you know, luxury items. And it's the bodies and souls of human beings, right? Um, and so just through from Genesis to Revelation, you know, in the Bible and in King um, and in other social justice prophets of, of the U.S. throughout history, you have this arc of, of you know, saying when you organize society around uh, poor people, when poor people get together and propose, you know, uh, solutions to to their issue, not ideological systems, not, you know, uh, you know, not, we're not talking about left and right here, but when, when folks who are in pain um, propose the kinds of solutions to their pain, when you lift from the bottom, when you forgive debts, you know, that doesn't just help um, those with the debts. When you increase living wages, that doesn't just help those with uh, higher wages, right? I mean, what we've done a bunch of, of work, um, it shows that, you know, for every dollar that we invest in early childhood programs, you know, we save $7. For every, 
if, if we were to immediately raise the, the minimum wage to living wages, um, you know, that would bring $300 million into the economy immediately that would distribute, um, be distributed, you know, to make small businesses run, you know, so, so this is what would right. be healthy for everybody. And so, so the conversation that, that I'm in and the response that I have is let's look at the Bible and let's look at social justice, you know, leaders throughout history and the kind of empirical solutions and data coming out of poor people's struggles today. And let's, let's, let's do that, you know? And so, you know, we so, can- So we two can, questions to follow. So uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Let's, let's find solutions uh, within the context in which we find ourselves that are uh, innovative and that might actually work because Currently, the solutions we have, um, like trickle-down economics, for instance, has never really trickled down, right? So uh, I, I think uh, two things I want you to address. Number one is you said asking poor people what their solutions are. I, I, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's, that, that could easily slip by people, uh, okay? But, but part of what you're up to is to actually say, could we actually consult the people who are in their own pain and, and, and not have solutions coming from outside? The second thing is though, why would you want to consult people who are poor if you're blaming them for poverty, right? So uh, I, I want you to address the question of individual versus systemic uh, poverty and uh, the individual poor versus systemic poverty. So could you look at the, connect those two dots for us? Yeah, no, I really appreciate this, you know, question, because I think, again, when we think about people who are poor, and why people are poor, and who is poor, I think we, we so often actually have misconstrued um, what the real reality in this, in this nation and in this world is, right? Um, there's 140 million people who are poor and low income, just according to the U.S. Census Supplemental Poverty Measure, right? That's close to half of the U.S. population, and that was before COVID-19 and this economic crisis and this rise in homelessness and, and healthcare loss, right? And so any society that has half of its people um, uh, experiencing, you know, poverty or, um, or deprivation of some sort, um, uh, it's not that half of this nation uh, is too lazy. It's not that half of this nation is having too many kids. It's not that half of this nation, you know, is just seasonally unemployed and they're going to, you know, be able to pick things up, you know, that it shows that poverty is structured into the very society that we're living in and that these policies over decades of trickle down of, um, you know, basically forgiving taxes of the rich and thinking that that's going to, you know, basically lift the boats of everybody. Um, it's, 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 it's not happening. It's not true. Um, it's not uh, an accurate understanding of, of the, the problem of poverty and, and who is poor, right? Um, the, the, in raw numbers, the majority of people in this country who are poor are, are white. Um, uh, folks are, are educated, right? The average age of a homeless person in this country is a child, is nine years old, right? And wow. so we have all of these stereotypes. We have all of these conceptions about um, who is poor and what people did to get themselves to it. Um, and they're not right. Now, of course, there's examples of, you know, any in any economic 
racket and any, you know, uh, of people, you know, messing things up. I'm not saying that people, you know, but, but the reality is, is that poverty is a structural problem. And so a structural problem result, you know, requires a structural solution where it's not going to be just job training programs. It's not going to just be, you know, emergency food programs that are going to actually be able to address a, a structural problem. Um, and, 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 and so then that does bring us back to um, why it is that we're suggesting that, that we need a movement and that that movement needs to be led, not only involved, but led by those who are most impacted, right? Um, and if we look at the, the, the nation's history and, and whether it's women's suffrage or whether it's abolition, whether it's civil rights, um, uh, you know, whether it's workers' rights, um, it's been when those, when, when movements have developed and those movements have been led by those most impacted, right? And again, have to involve everybody, you know? I mean, for, for big transformation to happen, um, we need, you know, people from every geography, every racial ethnic background, every um, income bracket, every, you know, I mean, every age. Um, and, and, you know, again, to kind of follow Frederick Douglass, he says, you know, uh, those in pain know when their pain is relieved. Those who would be free must strike the first blow. And so what we have is examples out of poor communities of, you know, water affordability programs in Michigan that are a model um, that were come up with uh, the solution to them by poor people, by people whose water was, you know, they had the highest water rates in the country. Um, right. And folks were, were basically having their water shut off um, when the Nestle corporations, one of the largest corporations in the world, was getting to bottle that same water for $100 a year. Um, but a family that couldn't pay a a $700, $800 a month water bill was not just having their water shut off, their home was being taken away, their children were being seized, right? And so poor people, folks without water in, in Detroit organized and, and put forward a solution working with researchers. That's what I'm trying to talk about is, yeah. is some of these solutions are out there. Um, those you know, who are impacted by these problems are having to take life-saving, bold, visionary action. Um, and um, and again, if we look at, at history, this is how change has happened. It's when people are compelled to organize and build, you know, a nonviolent movement from the bottom up um, that then so, real information. So is let's, just, let's just take some very simple uh, examples of what structural changes would would rep represent so for instance if if the minimum wage had grown from 1968 to the present day simply indexed according to CPI That's instead right. of being seven dollars and what is it now seven cents yeah yeah what what would it be today Liz it'd be more than twenty dollars an hour Exactly. Okay. And we are fighting locally in, in, in Dallas to get up to $15 an hour for city employees, you know, and, and we have, you know, all these cities who are trying to do, because we won't do it at the federal level, you know, because it's a job killer program if we increase the minimum wage. Now that's a systemic issue though, right? So if, if instead of seven and a quarter, you're at $22, right? Think about what that, that's three times the current minimum wage. What would a hardworking 40 hour work a week 
person be able to do with three times the current income, uh, how would that buying power change? How would that change the economy? All those sorts of things. What, what would happen, of course, is that, that businesses would, uh, would be able to earn a little bit less so that their employees could earn more. But on the other hand, in the long run, those same businesses have customers now that can buy their products, right? So... No, that's right. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, wages is a really important one and, and therefore also union rights, right? Um, the, the, by raising the minimum wage and by ensuring that people have the right to organize um, uh, and have good working conditions, you know, paid sick leave, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole host of, of right. things that, that surround um, wages, um, but, but, but even that alone, you know, can can raise um, the issue. I mean, can raise the standard of living again, not just for those low wage workers, but but for um, who are not a small percentage, right? There's 64 million people in the United States who are working um, at less than a living wage, right? Um, and so that's a huge percentage of our workforce. And so what what happens, like you're saying, when folks you know can earn more money, uh, then folks can you know both save a little bit of money so that then when emergencies, when storms, when fires, when public health crises, you know, come, then th they're able to, uh, you know, weather those storms. Um, but also, you know, folks are able to, 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 to buy goods and services um, and participate you know, more in the economy. Um, and so, so wages are surely a, a really big one. We also kind of uh, put out, you know, that we need a fair taxation system. You know, if, if, if those who could really afford it, less than the 1% were to have a taxation rate that we've had in this country's history, right? We're not, you know, that, that would bring an influx of, of resources um, where we wouldn't have to have in a pandemic education cuts um, because none of these states are willing to, to, to tax the rich just a little bit more you know, just a little bit, right? And so a fair taxation system um, where where wealthy people could pay their fair share um, and not, you know, and, and not pay actually less than most poor people and, and more middle income people pay in, in taxes. Um, we also could shift the military budget, right? Um, that um, basically, we spend more than 53 cents of every discretionary dollar in this country on the military. Um, and that isn't paying our veterans, it's not paying our service workers. You know, the, the majority of that money goes to military contractors, right? Um, just one contract with Lockheed Martin um, uh, for just one weapons system, like, you know, kind of, uh, just one. I mean, one of, of thousands of millions of contracts, right? It, that one alone could, uh, the money spent on it could expand Medicaid in 14 states, right? And so we have, we have this bloated military budgets that do not make our nation safer, right? It, it doesn't, um, it, you know, we still, if we cut our, our, our military budget in half, we would still have more, a, a, a larger military budget 
than like 150 countries combined. We'd still have a, a bigger military budget than Iran and China and Russia and all of the folks that we talk about that we're worried about, all combined, right? And yet, um, we, we keep on sinking more and more money into the military and less and less money, you know, sort of at 53 cents is for the military. It's less than 15 cents for education, healthcare, living wage jobs and anti-poverty programs combined. It, mm. And, and a, a budget is a moral document. It shows what a nation values. Um, and it's very clear that our this nation, the richest country in human history, does not value children, does not value workers, does not value those um, uh, that are, are, are doing the essential jobs to keep our society running, um, and, and does not value, you know, the overall health of our society. And, and so we could, we could do better, um, and it doesn't have to be this way. Um, well, Liz, I can't thank you enough for challenging us with your prophetic voice and your incredible experiences and learning. This has been just drinking from a fire hose, as they say, right? You know, and I, I hope that uh, it's um, it's been something that uh, those of us who listen and watch this program will be motivated beyond this moment to become more involved. And uh, the Poor People's Campaign is one way to do that. Uh, any uh, Anything you would say to someone in closing about, okay, I want to do something, how do I get started? So, um, you know, we're trying to build a movement and that movement needs to be massive and mighty. Um, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival is organized in 45 states, including Texas. Um, we would love for folks to, if you're not already involved, to, to join. And you can do so by texting the word moral, M-O-R-A-L, to the number 90975. You can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org and click on a map to see where people are doing actions and, and pulling together uh, work, um, you know, in your locale. Um, there's also the Cairo Center, one of the anchor organizations of the Poor People's Campaign that I direct in Repairs of the Breach, the, the one that, that Reverend Barber is the president of. And, and we're also doing work. Um, the Cairo Center, you know, is, is, is uh, putting on a policy conference. We have a, a weekly Freedom Church of the Poor um, worship service that folks can join online. There's lots of ways to, to, to get involved. And so you can go to CairoCenter.org, you can go to PoorPeoplesCampaign.org. But, 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 but th these are times when we need to, to be involved. We need to be connected to other people that, that care about justice and care about God. Um, and so please join us. And I'll uh, tag on to that, that you can also uh, go to our website at uh, faithcommons.org. And uh, Rabbi Nancy Kasten and Imam Omar Solomon and I are working here in the Dallas area, especially with other um, advocates. And we would love to connect you to other things happening here. So uh, Liz, on behalf of Good God, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and may God bless you in it. Thank you so much. God bless. Okay, take care. Thank you for tuning in to Good God. We're grateful to provide this for you during this time of COVID-19 isolation. And we hope that it is a consolation to you during this time. There have to be lots of ways that we reach each other. And even though we can't be in a studio as we normally are producing these, we're finding the technology using Zoom and, and communicating it to you through this programming. Uh, we hope that you'll find it to be encouraging to you as we make our way 
through these difficult days. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.